The False Electors, Wisconsin and the Cheese. Kenneth Chesbrough, named in the Georgia indictment and co-conspirator number five in Jack Smith's indictment, was the first of the 19 Georgia indictees to turn himself in. He did it on August 3rd, well before the August 25th deadline. He was also the first of the Georgia indictees to file a notice to the court that he wished to exercise his Sixth Amendment right to a speedy trial. Under Georgia law, that meant his trial would have to start by November 3rd or his case would have to be dismissed. Fonnie Willis's response was to request a trial date of October 23rd, and she reaffirmed that she still wished to try all the defendants together. That date was granted, and Chesbro is set for trial on October 23rd. Sidney Powell is the second indictee to request a speedy trial. Her trial date hadn't been set yet, but she filed a motion to sever her case from Chesbro's. She and Chesbro claimed that they have never met or communicated and were involved in completely separate prongs of the plot. Chesbro on the fake electors and Powell on the election machine tampering that occurred in at least three states. Wednesday was the hearing in Georgia on Sidney Powell's motion to sever her case from Chesbro. The judge denied Powell's motion to sever and set her trial date for October 23rd with Chesbro. And that's the beauty of RICO. It's concisely summed up in a delicious example of irony in QAnon's motto, where we go one, we go all. Co-conspirators need not have communicated or even known about the other ones. They only have to have been engaged in furthering a single corrupt act. Bonnie Willis is still asking for all 19 indictees to be tried on October 23rd. But the judge expressed concern about the case starting in such a short time, since over half of the indictees have now asked to move their case to federal court. He indicated that that issue needs to be resolved first so they don't start the trial and then have half of the indictees get moved to a different court. However, he denied Sidney Powell's motion to sever and assigned her to be tried on October 23rd along with Chesbro. And it appears that the two of them may be severed from the rest of the group, though there are plenty of arguments still to be made as to why there should only be one trial. Multiple people were floating various schemes to overturn the legitimate electoral college votes of Joe Biden in the first days after Trump lost the election. But the plot began to coalesce as a result of several memos Kenneth Chesbrough wrote, the earliest of which was dated November 18th, just two weeks after the 2020 election. Chesbrough is the key to it all, the one the House Select Committee on January 6th dubbed the architect of the false elector scheme. So here's your briefing. Kenneth Chesbrough is a Harvard-educated lawyer from Wisconsin who interned with noted constitutional scholar Lawrence Tribe, who is often interviewed on constitutional issues by the liberal media such as MSNBC. Barack Obama also interned with Tribe. Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan was a classmate of Chesbrough's. Chesbrough is regarded by his colleagues as very bright but wonky, as someone who can expound on constitutional law and come up with novel legal theories, but who also seems uncomfortable making eye contact. 
His Harvard classmates nicknamed him the Cheese because his last name is spelled like Cheese Bro, and he was from the Cheese State, Wisconsin. He was a respected, if not well-known, appellate lawyer who remained in Cambridge for many years in tribe's orbit. He worked on cases against the tobacco and pharmaceutical industries. He assisted tribe when Tribe represented Al Gore in the Florida recount when Gore lost the state by a hair in the presidential election of 2020. Chesbro donated to Bill Clinton and John Kerry, and he enthusiastically supported Barack Obama. But Chesbro never quite achieved the name recognition or the prestigious positions that many of his other classmates had achieved. Around 2008, Chesbro made a fortune in Bitcoin, after which he appears to have done a 180 on his political views. He switched his political party from Democrat to unaffiliated and began to contribute to Republican politicians. He divorced his wife of 20 years and married his 21-year-old girlfriend, with whom he currently lives in Puerto Rico. Chesbro came into the orbit of John Eastman, co-conspirator number two, who was the subject of your next briefing, in 2016 when he helped Eastman write a brief on a birthright citizenship case before the Supreme Court. Eastman argued that birthright citizenship was not actually guaranteed by the language of the 14th Amendment. Eastman then wrote an editorial in Newsweek magazine in August 2016, using the argument he made in the brief to claim that Kamala Harris was ineligible for the presidency because although she was born in the U.S., her parents were here as students and were not citizens. That caught Trump's eye, and he hired Eastman as a White House lawyer. After Trump lost the 2020 election, Chesbro was contacted by fellow Wisconsinite Jim Trupas, a judge and the chairman of the Wisconsin Republican Party. Trupas was the lead attorney in Wisconsin for the Trump campaign. He had a long, hard-right conservative political history in the state, and he was instrumental in redistricting that kept Republicans in power in Wisconsin for over a decade. The Trump campaign was in its early post-loss phase of filing lawsuits for recounts and challenging other aspects of the election, mainly by charging without evidence that massive voter fraud had occurred. Trump beat a steady drum of tweets and public statements that he had won the election and that it had been stolen from him and his mega supporters. Troopas had filed a volley of lawsuits on behalf of the Trump campaign in Wisconsin. He brought Chesbro on to advise him on constitutional matters surrounding one of the lawsuits, in which Troopas had asked for a recount in Dane and Milwaukee counties two predominantly Democratic counties that had accepted over 200,000 absentee ballots. He also asked that those ballots be thrown out because of voter fraud, though he offered no evidence of that fraud. Trump had been scaring his supporters away from absentee ballots since 2016, so it was almost assured that tossing out the votes from those two counties would be tossing out Democratic votes, enough of them to hand the state to Trump. Troopas lost the lawsuit, and the judge commented that its obvious purpose was to disenfranchise a select group of Wisconsin voters. But in the course of that lawsuit, on November 18th, two weeks after Trump lost the election, Chesbro sent Troopas a memo entitled, The Real Deadline for Settling a State's Electoral Votes. 
That wound up launching the false elector scheme. Wisconsin has the distinction of being the state that launched that prong of the plot to overturn the 2020 election, and Kenneth Chesbro cooked it up. So let's pause here a moment to review how we vote for president in this country. It's a complex system that few Americans really understand. The 12th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution lays out the rules and specific timeline governing presidential elections. Those rules were clarified in 1877 by the Electoral Count Act, which has governed the peaceful transfer of power in this country for over 130 years. Here's how it works. When you vote in a presidential election, you are not voting directly in a national election for your chosen candidate. That simple tally of all the votes across the country is what is known as the popular vote. And in 2020, Hillary Clinton won it by nearly 3 million votes. But the popular vote does not determine the winner of the election. When you cast your vote in a presidential election, you are actually only telling your state who you want for president. The actual election of the president is conducted by the Electoral College, which is not an actual physical entity, but a body of people from each state who are appointed to cast the electoral votes, the votes that actually elect the president and vice president. There are a total of 538 electoral votes, and a candidate needs 270 of them to win. The 538 electoral votes are divided among the states based on their representation in Congress. Each state gets two electoral votes for its two members of the Senate and an additional number of votes equal to its number of members in the House of Representatives. How many representatives your state gets depends on its population, and this is why the U.S. conducts a census every 10 years. The bigger your population, the bigger your portion of the 538 electoral votes. The minimum number of electoral votes a state can have is three, two for its two senators, and one being the lowest number of representatives a state can have. Now let's take another little detour here and completely oversimplify this to help you understand how a candidate can win the popular vote but lose the electoral college. Let's say state A has a thousand people and gets apportioned four of the electoral votes. States B and C only have five people each, but they get three electoral votes because that's the minimum number of electoral votes that a state can have. State A votes for candidate Jones, and its four electoral votes are awarded to her. She has a thousand popular votes. States B and C vote for candidate Alvarez. Candidate Alvarez gets only 10 popular votes, but six electoral college votes. Candidate Alvarez wins the presidency, though he lost the popular vote by a significant margin. The founders designed the electoral college system in part to hold the union together. Elections aren't based on the popular vote alone, because then a couple of hugely populated states like California and New York would be the only ones ever electing presidents. The Electoral College creates a proportionate vote 
rather than a majority vote that allows less populous states a say. Otherwise, why would they bother to stay in the union that does not represent them? Normally, the system works out to reflect the will of the people. Only five presidents in U.S. history have won the popular vote but lost the presidency. Among them were Al Gore in 2000 and Hillary Clinton in 2016. Now that you know how the electoral votes work in relation to the popular vote, let's go back to the process of how electoral votes are cast. Prior to the presidential election, the state parties of each candidate appoint people in their state to serve as electoral voters. After the election results are certified by the state's governor, he or she attaches the results, called a certificate of ascertainment, to each of the state's allotted electoral ballots and then mails them to the electors for the winning party. The work of the electors of the losing party is done. The electors then meet at their respective state capitals on the second Tuesday after the first Monday in December. See what I mean about the Electoral Count Act being confusing? Suffice it to say that in 2020, that date was December 14th. The electors cast two votes, one for their party's president and one for their vice president. They then send the electoral ballots to several different official places the main ones being the National Archives and Congress, where the vice president opens and counts them in a joint session of Congress on January 6th and announces the new president and vice president. There's another important deadline in the Electoral Count Act called the Safe Harbor Date. It occurs six days before the date the electors vote. That is the date by which states must certify their election results. In 2020, the safe harbor date was December 8th. Simply put, December 8th was the date by which all recounts, disputes, and legal challenges must have been completed. When Chesbro worked with Lawrence Tribe representing Al Gore after his loss in Florida, one of the reasons the Supreme Court stopped the Gore campaign's recount and handed the election to George W. Bush was because Gore's lawyers conceded that the recount couldn't be completed by the safe harbor date, or even by the time that the Florida electors had to vote. George W. Bush won the presidency. But Chesbro had 20 years to think about that outcome. He concluded that the safe harbor date and even the date that the electors cast their ballots wasn't in fact the end of the election that the contest wasn't over until January 6th. Now back to Wisconsin. The election was November 4th. The safe harbor date was December 6th. And the date for the electors to vote, essentially completing the election process until January 6th, was December 14th. Troopas and other states filed at best count 63 election lawsuits, all of which they eventually lost, even though they kept lobbing Hail Marys toward the courts in an attempt to overturn the certified electoral results for Biden in their states. But they were running out of time to challenge their state results and to seek to have Democratic votes thrown out. 
The memo, the real deadline for settling a state's electoral votes, that Chesbro sent to Troopas on November 18th, and eventually the six other targeted states, simply offered a strategy to give them more time to find proof, or at least further the false narrative of proof that would suffice as evidence among Trump supporters of the massive election fraud that Trump was claiming. In fact, the Democrats had already done it before in Hawaii. In the presidential election of 1960 between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, Nixon won Hawaii by a mere 140 votes. The vote was certified by Hawaii's governor and its three electoral votes were sent to Nixon's electors. Then, before Hawaii's three electors met, the Kennedy campaign filed a lawsuit asking for a recount. Kennedy already had a strong lead in the Electoral College, so Hawaii's three electoral votes would not have changed the outcome of the election. But it was Hawaii's first presidential election after becoming a state in 1959, and they wanted to get it right. With the results now in the hands of the court awaiting the recount, the Democrats decided that they should also submit their slate of electoral votes for Kennedy to be in compliance with the Electoral Count Act should the recount reveal that Kennedy was the actual winner of Hawaii. So the Democratic electors met and created electoral ballots that said they were Hawaii's legitimate electors and that Kennedy had won Hawaii's vote. But they also included an important caveat that said that these ballots were only intended to be used in the event that the recount which, remember, was proceeding legally and was under the jurisdiction of a state court, showed that Kennedy had won the election in Hawaii. That caveat will become important in 2020 in distinguishing the legality of the Trump electoral ballots in the seven states that submitted them. On December 19, 1960, the date that year that the Electoral Count Act specified for the electors to vote, the Democratic electors in Hawaii met at the state capitol and signed the uncertified electoral votes for Kennedy, as did the official Republican electors. The Democrats sent the ballots for Kennedy to Congress and the court and all the other places they were required to be sent under the Electoral Count Act much in the same manner that the false electors did in 2020 for Trump. On December 28, 1960, the recount concluded and revealed that Kennedy had actually won Hawaii. The governor of Hawaii issued a new certificate of ascertainment officially certifying Kennedy as the winner and withdrew Hawaii's Republican electoral votes for Nixon. The state court overseeing the recount didn't conclude the case and declare the Kennedy electors valid until January 4, 1961. The judge attached the corrected certificate of ascertainment to his copy of the electoral ballots the Democratic electors had signed, specifically citing as support for his decision that it was important that the Kennedy electors had met and voted on the date required by the Electoral Count Act. By doing so, 
they had preserved the legal option for Kennedy to receive Hawaii's electoral votes. The new electoral votes for Kennedy were flown to Congress and arrived just in time for the count in Congress on January 6, 1961. Nixon, who was the vice president at the time and presiding over the electoral count in Congress, did not file an appeal of Kennedy's recount case. An appeal would have been the test of the legality under the Electoral Count Act of the judges accepting the Democratic electoral ballots in the Hawaii recount. But Nixon, like Gore, conceded for the sake of a smooth transition of power, especially since the new votes for Hawaii would not change the outcome of the election. Nixon said that Hawaii's new slate of electors properly and legally portrays the facts with respect to the electors chosen by the people of Hawaii. And so he declined to appeal the unusual decision in Hawaii. But he also said that accepting Hawaii's democratic slate of electors held no binding weight on future elections and did not set a legal precedent, an important point to remember when this case is cited by Trump's team. Kenneth Chesbro says the November 18th memo to Jim Troopas basically cites what played out in Hawaii in 1960 as a means to preserve Trump's chance to take the state's electoral vote should any of the numerous lawsuits Troopas filed on behalf of the Trump campaign prevail and Trump be declared the winner of the state. It also provided a means to extend the deadline by which the state could continue to seek evidence of fraud and exercise the various options that could present for the campaign to continue to fight for Trump beyond the safe harbor deadline. Had he stopped there, Chesbro's defense that he was just offering his clients the best legal advice he could would have held. The advice he had offered though novel and never actually tested in a court of law, wasn't illegal. It would buy the campaign more time to fight Trump's loss. In a rare interview Chesbro gave to Talking Point's memo after his indictment, Chesbro said, quote, To the extent that I or any other attorney involved in the 2020 presidential contest on either side has come under criticism for identifying possible strategic options that might come into play under various scenarios that could develop, it should be kept in mind that this is what lawyers do. It is the duty of an attorney to leave no stone unturned in examining the legal options that exist in a particular situation. Lawyers have an ethical obligation to explore every possible argument that might benefit their clients. In my work for the Trump-Pence campaign, I fulfilled that ethical obligation." End quote. But that was before a new bombshell memo that Chesbro wrote on December 6, 2020, was revealed by the New York Times. It was titled, Important That All Trump-Pence Electors Vote on December 14th. The House Select Committee on January 6th heard testimony about it, but was never able to obtain the memo. That memo marks what the Associated Press calls a sharp departure from Chesbro's original memo 
to preserve Trump's options in the event that one of the Wisconsin lawsuits prevailed in handing Wisconsin to Trump. In the December 6th memo, Chesbro expands the fake elector scheme to the other six states that the Trump campaign was contesting as a means not of reflecting the people's will, but in subverting it to steal the election from Joe Biden and hand it to Trump. That's coming up in your next indictment briefing. To conclude this one, even though I already gave you a history lesson on Hawaii, I have another brief one related to this episode, which reveals just the kind of characters Trump surrounded himself with. The million dollar question is who originally came up with the idea of the fake elector scheme? Chesbro is the architect, no doubt, having issued his first memo on it just two weeks after the election. He put the scheme together and he actually implemented it. But another bombshell came out just after Chesbro's November 6th memo dropped two weeks ago. MSNBC dropped a video of Roger Stone, a guy who had his grimy mitts in every shenanigan the Trump administration has ever pulled. Just one day after the election, before any results had been certified, Stone lays out the false elector scheme, debunking the Trump campaign's claim that the scheme came about only after they had discovered massive fraud in the 2020 election. Roger Stone has had a long career as a self-styled political dirty trickster since he cut his teeth on it as an intern for Richard Nixon in 1972, the year that Watergate happened. Stone idolized Nixon so much that he got a tattoo of him across his back. Throughout the 1970s, Stone was partners with Paul Manafort and a DC consulting firm that revamped the image of dictators and warlords the world over to help them get elected or retain power in their respective countries. Stone urged Trump to bring Manafort on as Trump's volunteer campaign manager just before the Republican National Convention in 2016. Manafort was one of the people who wound up being indicted as a result of Robert Mueller's investigation, and he accepted a plea deal in the case in 2018 for a sentence of 43 months. Manafort admitted to money laundering, tax fraud, and illegal foreign lobbying connected to his years working for a Russian oligarch-connected Ukrainian presidential candidate. The Mueller report also revealed the real reason Manafort volunteered to manage Trump's campaign for free. He was trading inside campaign information to a Russian oligarch to pay off an $8 million debt that he owed him. Manafort was sentenced to additional time and went to prison before being released to home confinement during the COVID epidemic. He was pardoned by Trump just before Trump left office in 2020. Roger Stone was also indicted as a result of the Mueller investigation. And he was convicted and sentenced to three years in prison for lying to the House Committee investigating January 6th about his contact with Julian Assange, 
to arrange for WikiLeaks to release the emails Russian intelligence services stole from the DNC during the 2016 campaign in an effort to damage Hillary Clinton. Stone was also charged with witness tampering after he lied about an intermediary in the scheme and then left messages on the guy's phone suggesting he might kill the guy's dog if he testified to Congress. Trump also pardoned Stone on his way out the door. Roger Stone has since taken the Proud Boys oath and they provided his security on January 6th. He is implicated as a White House connection to the Proud Boys prior to the events of January 6th. And when Enrique Tarrio, the Proud Boys leader who was sentenced to 22 years in prison last week for his part in the insurrection, was asked by the FBI if he was communicating with anyone in the White House prior to the attack, he said no, none. And then he specifically said, not Roger Stone. Since Stone worshipped all things Nixon, and the fake elector scheme originated with the Nixon-Kennedy election in 1960, I wouldn't put it past him to be one of the ones who originally floated the idea of that political dirty trick. If you're playing indictment bingo at home, be sure Stone is on your card as Jack Smith's investigation continues. <laughs> 